Welcome to the Room Now podcast. I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. It's 9-9-22, a date that works on both sides of the Atlantic. Today, we're going to talk about predicting when ITP becomes lupus, or maybe when psoriasis evolves into some kind of arthritis, and even better and harder when Sjogren's might could become lymphoma. Yogi Berra said it best, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future, but that's what this podcast is about. So we'll start with a study of ITP patients and when they become lupus. 130 patients were followed um, and a mean of 30 months. And I think that the, uh, what was the percentage here? It was a low percentage of them who developed SLE. I didn't write it down. I want to say it was like 7, 10, 12%, something like that. Um, and when they looked at the ones who developed SLE, not surprisingly, there were some features here that were going to maybe predict that. And these would have been baseline features in the ITP patients. So that would have included um, a younger age of onset, under the age of 40, odds ratio of over 6 Organ bleeding. I'm not sure what organ bleeding is, but it doesn't sound good, and I don't want it. I'm thinking GI bleed? Brain bleeds? Lung bleeds? What? So maybe ITP bad enough that you actually get bleeding within organs. That might be more predictive of lupus. Odds ratio of over 13. And not surprisingly, ANA, an odds ratio of 6.6. So... You know, I remember arguing with our hematologist whether ITP by itself was a um, a prelude to lupus, and they said often not. And we said, well, gee, we see a lot of patients who have lupus who started out as ITP. It's a matter of perspective, I believe. You know, we seeing more lupus than not seeing lupus. Nonetheless, it does happen. Another interesting study comes from a registry called. Registsponsor is a Spanish spondoarthritis registry, a fairly large registry. And in this registry, they found that 18% of patients had psoriasis um, at the onset. Uh, three quarters of these actually had psoriasis before they developed musculoskeletal symptoms. But then think about the converse there. 24% would have had musculoskeletal symptoms either with the psoriasis or preceding the psoriasis. Now, I don't know what your numbers are, but my numbers on psoriatic arthritis sine psoriasis, meaning arthritis that doesn't yet have the skin disease or nail disease, that's about 10% of all PSA patients. Nonetheless, 24% were of the kind where it was either preceding the psoriasis or with the psoriasis. But again, when they looked at the people who... Um, we're going to start out with psoriasis and then later develop MSK symptoms. They were going to have a shorter disease duration, lower BMI, skinny people, less B27 positivity, um, less anterior uveitis, more dactylitis, and overall, uh, patients who started out with psoriasis before the, the, the arthritis or MSK symptoms we're more likely to have a higher risk of developing into psoriatic arthritis. Obviously, if you have psoriasis, you 
should develop more psoriatic arthritis, but you could develop other things. Well, sure enough, that when you looked at what kind of arthritis, 78% developed psoriatic arthritis um, versus uh, 58% in people who were in that other group, the 24% who had the psoriatic arthritis preceding the actual psoriasis or coming on with it. So there are some features here that do tell you um, who's going to evolve into musculoskeletal symptoms. And then lastly, a multi-center match control study looked at primary Sjogren's syndromes that were going to develop uh, lymphoma or not. Historically, it's been said that parotid gland swelling um, was a predictor of developing future lymphoma. If I think back to, uh, I've had many Sjogren's just like you. The ones I've had that have had impressive uh, parotid swelling, in fact, were the ones who developed um, lymphoma. I probably had three of those in my career. Uh, so this is not a frequent event, is it not? Nonetheless, in this study, they also found that it was an early major predictor of those who would go on to develop later non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, especially if it presented before the diagnosis of Sjogren's or at the time of diagnosis. The other predictive factor in developing future lymphoma was the longer duration of the longer the duration of parotid gland swelling, the greater the risk of future lymphoma. So take that parotid gland swelling. And by the way, that doesn't have to be unilateral. It can often be bilateral. Um, and both are worrisome features that should lead to further evaluation, if not biopsy. Systemic sclerosis patients, what, ha you know, what happens? They get sclerodactyly. They get tight skin. I remember sitting around in my fellow's clinic having discussions about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, meaning we had lots of discussions when we didn't know anything about stuff we didn't know. And I remember this particular discussion coming up, and that was, if you get scleroderma and it's really bad in the hands, do you lose your fingerprints? And would that make you a better criminal? Because you wouldn't have fingerprints. Of course, back then we didn't have many scleroderma patients. We had a few and boy, it scared, scared us to no end. Well, there's been research that looked at this. A study of 100 patients in Korea with systemic sclerosis showed that um, in those who had finger involvement, Fingerprints were not changed significantly over time. And the only way you're going to screw up a fingerprint, even with, you know, really severe sclerodactyly, because it's usually, and you can lose finger pad pulp, but you don't lose your fingerprints, right? Even though your skin gets tight. Um, so what happens though, is you lose your fingerprints when you can't, when you can't really do a good fingerprint because you have a contracture of the distal digit or you have severe acroosteolysis, or you have severe uh, digital ulcers that are in the way. Now, again, digital ulcers that would affect the pulpy part um, that you get your fingerprint from are pretty unlikely, but if it was severe, those are the ways that you could have a loss of fingerprints. Is that not fascinating? Do we not cover all of the strange tidbits in rheumatology here on the podcast? We cover common things, gout, and we have this very large ACR registry called the RISE registry. And 
this report that went up was meant to be a positive report, but I think it's got a negative um, interpretation. And the report is almost 10,000 gout patients in the RISE registry. When they looked at them, 56% of the patients had one or more serum uric acid level done in a year's time. 56% of established gout. And this is the RISE registry, meaning it's a rheumatology registry. Rheumatologists are collecting this data. Rheumatologists who have gout patients and only 56% are having a uric acid level done? Really? Oh my goodness. Amongst those who had one or more recorded SUAs, congratulations, 74, 74% achieved a serum uric acid target of less than six. But people, 56%, and you take 74% of that, we get back to the number that is out there for how many people actually achieve target, even when managed by rheumatologists, it's about 40%. We're not that good at managing gout. We should be better. We're supposed to be the best. And we should be better at achieving serum uric acids. If you don't measure it, you are not going to have a target, right? So I, it has to be measured once or more, certainly more than once, don't you think? One of the biggest tweets that we had this past week was about the NICE guidelines that's in the United Kingdom, new NICE guidelines in gout management, and they call for serial assessment of uric acid levels. I don't know why some people are not doing this. It's sort of mind-blowing, I would say, to me. A systematic review of telemedicine in rheumatology recently uh, looked at 36 reports, 27 observational studies, 7 randomized control trials, two clinical control trials, um, and they were mostly done in, in general rheumatology, sometimes done in individual disease like lupus, RA, PSA, and they all had a similar takeaway take message. They had bias in a lot of these reports. The quality data wasn't all that great, but nonetheless, there was uniformity in the belief that telemedicine is as good as usual care and inpatient care. And this is mainly for follow-up care, not necessarily new patient visits. This is really important because many, all of you had to do telemedicine to survive in 2020 and parts of 2021. Most of you have actually given up on telemedicine, and I have said this before, I'll say it again, that's a gigantic mistake. This is a way to diversify what you do to make you different than other practitioners out there. And by the way, if you're into it and you do it, patients love it. Patient satisfaction levels with telemedicine is really quite high. Um, and not only are you just as good, you're just as good as in-person care um, and usual care in the assessment of disease activity. Many of you think you can't do it because you can't touch it or do a great exam. You can assess disease activity by telemedicine. Patient satisfaction, I said. Cost, a big win. And feasibility, another big win. Telemedicine works, and we should be doing that in rheumatology and champion and be champions of, uh, of this um, facet to medical care. So we have two reports that have to do with COVID. Um, the first would be uh, the telemedicine. The second would be what happens to vaccine responses when you're on drugs. You all know that methotrexate severely impairs humoral responses to any vaccine. Influenza, also the, the, the current 
COVID vaccines and boosters. Do JAK inhibitors and other drugs do this? Well, this particular study of 113 fully vaccinated RE patients being they received their two vaccines, most of them were the Pfizer. There was a few Moderna and a few another, one other kind that was out there, but most of them were the Pfizer vaccine. And they showed overall in the control population, the people not on JAKs, that RE patients had a somewhat depressed humor response as measured by neutralizing antibodies to the spike protein. 77%. But if you looked at those who were being treated with a JAK inhibitor, it was less. It was 29% less at 55%. 29% less with the JAK inhibitor. It's a good number. It's not a devastating number. Um, is it enough for me to stop my JAK inhibitor and the methotrexate? Because when they looked at those who were on a JAK and methotrexate, it was a much deeper and more severe uh, impairment of the humoral response, much more significant. So if I have a patient on a jack and methotrexate, I'm going to hold the methotrexate. I don't think I'm going to hold the jack. If I have a patient on a jack alone and I can get away with holding the jack um, after they get their, um, their vaccine, uh, I will. So methotrexate, as you know, is, a, is a, supposed to be two weeks. Jack inhibitors, I would make a one-week hold um, but again, I would recommend you read the guidelines on that because everybody has a slightly different take on this. There was a report this week from um, NHANES Survey Research as a national um, survey data looked at RA patients and OA patients showing a significantly increased risk of hypertension. Now, is this surprising or, or not to you? Um, we don't think of RA as being a disease associated with hypertension, and certainly we may not think of that as OA. Yes, these are current older people who get hypertensive. These are current people who are inactive um, and have inflammatory cytokines. And, and these are vascular diseases in their own way. Uh, osteoarthritis is probably uh, ischemic disease to cartilage and bone. Um, and the pain from that can be from osteoangina, taught that by Roy Altman many years ago. Um, RA we know is a microvascular disease. But again, in this particular survey, it's clear that both RA and OA have a significantly increased risk of, of, of hypertension, and you should take that into account in your assessment. We know that these diseases have a significant amount of comorbidity, with hypertension being one of the leading candidates. You may have seen in the last week the um, overview paper that I wrote about genetic testing in autoinflammatory diseases. It appeared on room now but also appeared on the website the new website stills now i'd encourage you to go to stills now to read this paper and also to hear the podcast on this subject of when should you do genetic testing in patients with fever and or presumed autoinflammatory disease dr susan shinoy and i susan's from the university of washington and seattle children's hospital uh, uh, and we had a really great podcast and discussion about this the bottom line is that uh, you know, you have a well-established diagnosis of Stills disease. You don't need to do genetic testing. Maybe there's a caveat there that we go over in the podcast. But generally, these are people who don't meet criteria for Stills disease. So if it's an adult, it would be either the Cush criteria or the Amaguchi criteria. Uh, and if they don't, then what do they have? And if you're not clear, based on the presentation, that this is FMF, traps, whatever, um then Schnitzler syndrome, then you might consider genetic testing. As you know, genetic testing is very useful 
in the diagnosis of monogenic autoinflammatory disease that are often discovered during childhood. Things like FMF and hyper-IgD syndrome and TRAPS and, and, and CAPS, the cryopyrin-associated periodic syndromes, Mucklewell's, Nomid, Cinca, etc. But a lot of these do occur during adulthood. And there's an expanding list of genetically linked diagnoses. So my criteria for when to do these would include continued, unexplained, undiagnosed fevers, especially if they're high. And also if they're recurrent. If they're daily, you should do it. If they're recurrent with some periodicity, you should certainly consider this. Non-response to standard of care therapies for auto-inflammatory diseases, meaning they don't respond to an IL-1 or colchicine or steroids, you probably want to consider that. The presence of symptoms that would be suggestive of an autoimmune disease. And there's a constellation here that holds up for a lot of the different diseases that you might identify with genetic testing. This includes arthralgias, myalgias, arthritis, uh, oral or aphis ulcers, abdominal pain, rash urticaria, um, pustular disease or psoriatic looking disease, eye inflammation, mainly conjunctivitis, lymphadenopathy, serositis, um, CNS manifestations, fatigue, etc. Those would be good enough reasons. Now, beyond these new panels of genetic testing that are that are driven by um, next-gen gene, sequence, gene sequencing, which has made them cheaper and panels of 50, 60, 70, 80 genes at one time, I like to use the Invitae.com, I-N-V-I-T-A-E.com. They have an auto-inflammatory panel. I think it's over 80 genes. It's $250. Um, if the patient's going to pay for it themselves, cash pay, I think it, I, I've had it done for as little as $100, meaning I order it, say it's going to be a self-pay, they send the patient the tube, they get the sample, they get perform the test, you got a result in two weeks. And they'll look at 80 different genes, and then you'll get an answer as to whether a new disease or an unexpected disease has now been confirmed. So most of the time you get no answer or, or um, variants of unknown significance, meaning we don't, it's, a, it's an abnormality, but we don't know what it means yet. And with time, we may know. Now, if you, get, if you get an, an unexpected or a non-result and the patient still has symptoms, you could do whole exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing. And those are available and much more expensive, harder to find, but they should be considered when there's a failed genetic test, genetic panel test, uh, and or when there's a strong family history of a similar type disorder. Anyway, this is genetic testing and autoinflammatory disease. There's a new report came out in Lancet this past week and also one of the European pulmonary meetings that uh, Nintendib, uh, as you know, which has been approved for use in adults, um, Nintendib is also called OVEV, O-F-E-V. Uh, it's approved for patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or chronic fibrosing interstitial lung disease. That's progressive. Or for us, um, slowing the rate of pulmonary decline in patients with systemic sclerosis-associated disease. Now comes a report of Nintendo being studied in 39 children who have fibrosing ILD. Uh, and the study, as is always done in kids, when they're looking for a kid-equivalent crossover study, they have to do the PK studies to show that they have the right dosing, and they have to show... Um, 
uh, safety profile and they have to show some clinical improvement. So this study was very clear in showing um, the right dose using weight-based dosing and safety and this data will be used to probably get a juvenile indication for ILD in 39 children. Uh, again, they did show that in this study that they, um, there was much less mean change in forced vital capacity at week 24 in those receiving nintednib versus placebo, 0.3 versus minus 0.9, and that was significant, um, meaning that patients who go on this drug, drug don't have progression, and that's what we saw in our systemic sclerosis patients. So we may look forward to that drug being approved in the future. The FDA is going to consider that. I found this report, next report, interesting, and that's B12 in patients with fibromyalgia. Now, it's an open-label study of 29 patients, and they gave them 1,000 micrograms of sublingual B12 daily. And after 50 days, they showed significant reductions in the FIQR, the fibromyalgia impact questionnaire, which measures, you know, the whole total quality of life kind of thing, um, 49, almost 50 versus 40, and that's significant. Also significantly were improved with the, the components of that function, uh, overall symptoms, anxiety scores, all improved with B12 therapy in the 29, very few, fibromyalgia patients who took this. Now, I thought this was goofy. I thought this represented probably a placebo effect because it's uncontrolled. But if you look at the literature, there's a modest literature out there about Patients with fibromyalgia having low B12 levels, also having low vitamin D levels and low ferritin levels. So if you're a naturopath, you think, well, let's start, start giving iron and vitamin D and let's use B12. And if this is the way you want to go, knock yourself out, report back to us how it goes. But there's no re good research in this area. I think vitamin D, any of you who believe vitamin D fixes fibromyalgia, you're out of your mind because there's no evidence of that. There are, yes, many reports that low vitamin D exists in people who have everything from lumbago to itchy teeth to fibromyalgia to breast cancer. It doesn't matter, meaning it's low in people who aren't doing well, no matter what the cause is. If it were going to be helpful, vitamin D that is, it would fix the problem with supplementation and there's really no evidence of that. Now, B12 has not been studied in a controlled fashion and this data would invite further study. Maybe it'll happen. Again, if you're a naturopath, you'll love this data. If you're not, you're going to write me an angry letter. I'll read it. I'll respond. I'll say I'm sorry. And then I'm going to say the same thing next week. Uh, our last report has to do with new therapy um, that appeared in um, the New England Journal on Thursday this past week. And this is for a, a monoclonal antibody directly against um, dendritic cell antigen 2, BDCA2. Um, the drug is litafilumab, litafilumab. This is a study reported by Dr. Fury and colleagues, and they studied 102 patients with SLE um, who were treated with one of three different doses of uh, um, this drug that binds BDCA2. And they... Only 137 patients or 160, 137 patients, I think, were enrolled. They only analyzed 102 because two of the doses, they didn't have only six patients that were treated. 
and they compared the patients who were on the 450 milligram dose versus the placebo dose. The drug was given like every two weeks times eight weeks and then every four weeks. Primary endpoint was at 24 weeks or six months. And, and, and the only thing that was significant in this study were the joint responses. Now, the, this particular study started out with a cutaneous lupus response. But midway through, they changed who they were going to enroll. They enrolled more patients with systemic disease, and they made the joint outcomes, active joints measured by tender and swollen joints, the primary outcome. It's not really even a standard, but that's what they did. Um, and they made skin outcomes like the classy score, a secondary endpoint, along with other outcomes. The bottom line, these patients overall, 102 patients, had about 20 active joints, um, around 19 and 20 in two different cohorts. Um, and it turns out by week 24, the, those that were on the BDCA2 um, had a significant reduction, um, minus 15, versus only minus 11 with placebo. And that was significant statistically so, clinically so, I don't know. But more importantly, the secondary endpoints, including skin, were not improved. Now, this is interesting because this drug basically is going to bind to BDCA2 on plasmacytoid dendritic cells. And in doing so, would impair the release of type 1 interferon, which we know act activates tons of cells, other dendritic cells, and B cell activity, and it's thought to be a prime driver. But now this is the second drug thought to affect uh, alpha interferon, type 1 interferon, um, but nonetheless didn't work as well as expected. Anafrolimab, as you know, is FDA approved, um, and it mainly works in skin and joint lupus, but the responses were irrespective of baseline alpha interferon um, profiles, meaning if you were a high expressor of that, it didn't predict whether or not you're going to respond or not. So again, we know that alpha interferon is key to the pathogenesis of the disease, but these drugs are not making it easy in understanding how exactly that works. So if you have a question or a case that you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, go to the website or the email and find the at, the blue box that says Ask Kush Anything. You can record your case or question there. We'll discuss it on future podcasts. If you like this podcast, please spread the word. Tell your, your, your mother, your uncle, your best friend, and your partner. Um, give us a good review should you think we deserve it. And please keep listening. We'll talk to you next week. Take care.